Warwick Mahaley, thank you for having me in your office. I'm super impressed by what you guys have got going on here. <laughs> Great to have you here, Dave. It's, Mate, a, it's an it's absolute an pleasure. I've been reading a lot about you guys on the internet. You publish a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's how I found out about you because you've got you've got the blog and you've recently kind of rebranded the blog, reloaded it. It's back. It never Why left, you... but it's it's had some changes. Like, what's what's going on with it, and uh, where's it going this year? Um, well, the, the rebrand is uh, stems from a, a question of utilitarianism because no one knows how to pronounce or spell Panfilo Castaldi. I still don't. Yeah, but Panfilo is true to that uh, origin, but is also um, bite-sized and basically phonetic so uh you know uh, massively and with a guy with a coming from a guy with a name that also no one knows how to spell you know Mahaley gets butchered in 20 different ways um having something short and sweet is really really nice and I thought that it was a time I found a way to make the change um, bloodlessly and then I thought it was an opportunity to just you know zazz up the um interface a bit and not necessarily reboot the content but hopefully get into it a bit more than I have been Um, kids have an amazing way of absorbing vast amounts of time Mm -hmm. and blogging for me has always been the the thing I do in the evenings rather than something I I feel guilty about it if I'm doing it during business hours because Mm -hmm. it's like it's not a money spinner it's a it's a joy mm. and so um, my evenings are less fruitful than they might have once upon one a time been and so that's a life just right more basically I must have 30 drafts sitting like yeah. my drafts list just get longer and longer yeah. stuff with maybe just a title and a few key ideas and nothing else and some of them might have a bit more fleshed out yeah. but it's just about trying to knock them down and um, and also I think now is an interesting time in our business because we're going through a bit of a transition and growing. We've grown quite rapidly over the last six months, basically doubled the number of people, mm. you know, from sort of three to six people, basically. Mm. Um, and the blog has always also really been a, a process of, um, like, I guess, cathartic reflection, thinking about the issues we're going through. I find it very hard to motivate myself to write, you know, 10 ESD ideas for your renovation. I mean, unless we're actually trying, unless we've got a problem in the studio or which we're trying to solve around that kind of idea, I just find it boring to manufacture that content. I want to treat it basically as a super disciplined diary of our business. And because there's a lot of interesting things happening in our business at the moment, I'm getting much more invigorated about getting Mm. that content into the blog. Mm. It's so... Your articles are so um, thoughtful and I understand when you're talking about having 30 drafts, you read them and you know that the amount of time that you're putting into each of these, whether it's just the fact that you've got citations and graphs (laughs) and they're they're almost academic, they're really pleasurable to read, they're really well written. That's not something that I do because I'm more on that side of things of going 10, 10, blah, 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 to like do this and that and it's really that kind of putting out content probably for the wrong reasons 
um, and you're doing it not actually it doesn't feel like you're aiming to there really is no payback payoff from the thing it feels it's just is it just an outlet you just do it because it's interesting um, and do you think too much about who reads it or, or what it kind of leads to for the for your practice oh no I think both both it's a thing that expects no payback yeah. that is definitely a part of it I think with yeah. blogging as with putting together podcasts or yeah. even Instagram mm. I mean Instagram has an immediate um, uh, response that you can get but whether or not people find value out of that content that you're generating in those um, uh, outlets it's a little bit like shouting into the void. So if you're not enjoying what you're doing, mm. if you don't find value in the actual act of doing that thing, then I don't know why you're doing it. Mm. Um, mm. Unless someone wants to pay you vast amounts of money to do it, then sure, right about chickens, that's fine. But so there is that. At the same time, there is simultaneously a keen interest in what happens as a result of it. Mm. The blog started um, at the probably belatedly in an 18 month trip around mostly Europe and Southeast Asia um, and a tiny bit of Northern Africa that Erica and I did in 2009, 2010. And I say belatedly because I should have started it when we left, but instead I started like three months before we came back. And so it had a very key, it had a very specific um, remit at that point, and that was to... Um, as we returned to Melbourne was to maintain what we thought of as the traveler's lifestyle, which is, you know, you hear about some event while you're traveling and you go to it mm. because what else are you going to do that evening? Like you're there to experience mm. a city or something or a place. And so if there's an exhibition or some sort of performance, you do whatever you can to get to that thing. Cause you know, you're not going to be back in Lisbon for God knows how long. So you may as well mm. pursue that opportunity. And I didn't want us to return back to Melbourne and feel like it just went back to routine, 100%, no sort of interest in the, the broader community or culture of, say, architecture and art and design. And so as I came back from, when I came back from those travels, it was all about having a reason to go out and see stuff because then I could write about it and then needing stuff to go and see because I needed stuff to write about. It was like this beautiful, cyclical mm-hmm. um Arrangement, which got me out seeing more things, going to more lectures, going to exhibitions, and then reviewing them. Um, and then the articles were very short and much more off the cuff. Like I wrote about mm. anything. I wrote mm. about food. I wrote about the theatre, movies, theater, movies uh, uh, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. And almost all that stuff is gone now. Like yeah. stopped, not that I don't do that stuff. But they were like 500 word s little sort of reviews. Mm. And if I go back and read some, like some of them are okay, but they're a bit throwaway. Mm. I don't think there's much long-term value in that mm. about one other person reviewing a Batman film, yeah. which I did once. Um, it was a long time ago, though. Maybe internet of 10 years ago was a bit of a... Were we talking that long ago? Oh, no. The blog started... From, uh, it's the same age as the business, almost seven years ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah October. Yeah, different different yeah. way of doing things back then. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, blogging was by no means new then. Yeah. But I remember being very interested in what the WordPress community were writing about. Yeah. Now, the idea of a WordPress community is ridiculous because it's basically 25% of the internet. Mm. Um, but I now not only care what the WordPress community is writing about, mm. I'm more interested in about the community that I'm interested in mm. pursuing and being part of. Mm. And so as life, I guess, 
contracted a a bit from that traveller's lifestyle to running a business, the essays got more specific and much longer. Mm. Um, And so, you know, now they're, you know, usually 1,500, 2,000 words long. And that's actually long enough to write something meaningful. And because it's about writing about the same thing over and over again, you know, running an architecture practice, the business of architecture, Mm. data, there's now a, like a portfolio of ideas that actually trace a bigger picture yeah. rather than me just writing about whatever I feel like. Yeah. Um, and there are still a few things that I always want to write about that aren't specifically about business, like the, the architecture conference each year is kind mm. of a yeah. repeating thing. But other than that, there's, it's really just now about the business and practice of architecture is my main mm. passion. Um, and I like it because not many else, not many other people are writing about it. Certainly not in Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah. And someone once said that if you want to yeah. find your internet tribe, you need to be talking about oranges when everyone else is talking mm. about apples. Mm. And eventually, oranges become interesting, and you happen to be the guy who has a hundred articles about yeah. oranges, and so yeah. suddenly you're a thought leader. Yeah. And I think there's value in that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's it's interesting. There really isn't a lot of communication out there from architecture firms and is that a time thing or is it a, like a technical know-how you know not everyone knows how to start a website and think about know, SEO and have a mailing list and all these other things that you do there's and, and we went to that business management CPD event the other night and there was like five or six architects and, and you were the real I thought breath of fresh air there because there was a kind of excited willingness to try out little tools that came out yesterday like a week ago but that's they're they're already developed enough for you at that point to jump into them and go oh yeah i'll i'll figure out how this works and i'll see if i can bend it to do what i need it to do but if not there's always another thing out there yeah it's interesting observation i've had certainly not fisticuffs but i've had disagreements with older architects um, in forums where my interest in the internet and what it can do for architecture practice is seen as improper Hmm. Um, and I've never I've never argued against the value of maintaining a personal network or about you know sitting on committees and joining your local RSL or whatever because those are valuable opportunities for an architect to generate business and to contribute to a community. Um, I think those things are all very interesting and good. Um, It just so happens that partly because of the blog and partly because I'm a bit of a tech head um, and definitely a data junkie that there was a time when when we started looking at how a business was performing and how we were getting particular inquiries from the internet that led nowhere, we just sort of jumped into it. And ever since then, that interest has never waned. Mm. In fact, you know, the, the deeper you go, the more we realise how many people are providing new tools and new opportunities out mm. there in the business management systems is a good example. Mm. Um, and because of that interest in data, when we started looking at a new system to use, um, I thought, well, I may as well look at as many as I can and generated this massive spreadsheet that compared like a couple of dozen different software options and then have discovered since that there are dozens more that I never even had heard of before. Like the market for that sort of thing is massive. And so 
one of those is going to be awesome for me or whoever else. Um, you're not going to know if you just do everything the way you've always done it. Mm. Um, but I think there's a. I think architects can be quite um, conservative. And I know, for instance, when it comes to material selection for uh, my buildings, it's not that I'm conservative, but I just really love timber mm. and steel and concrete and those materials that have been used forever. And whenever someone comes up with a newfangled mm. um, hybrid mm. compound product that does looks like timber but actually will never warp, I go, nah, nah, just give me some tree. Yeah. I don't like these new things. Yeah. And so from a materials point of view, I like things that have been around for forever. Yeah. But when it's from business, I like all the new stuff. I like yeah. the new toys and it's something. I want something on my phone that I can – I do a lot of business on my phone. Mm. banking and you know zero yeah. and all that sort of business yeah it seems like there's two classes of architects when it comes to technology I don't know if it's an age thing or it's a certain I don't know if it's ideological it's in when I was in Japan they actually they had a, a complete break in the industry there was two halves so there's like they talked about how there's these sort of production architects. They're still architects. They draw things. They they CAD stuff. They design buildings, but they're not the buildings that people really care about. They're just the buildings that have to be a building. Yeah, right. They do a different kind of education, and they have a different kind of skill set. But they're still architects. What do you mean they do a different kind of education? They do a different kind of education. So they, they don't do a master's of architecture. They don't do the same thing. Oh, wow. But they're still architects. But they're kind of categorized differently. And then you've got these other kind of architects, which are the kind of ones that we like, which are really creative, really innovative. They talk publicly. They have ideas. They're ideologues of some mm. kind. But they were so clear-cut about the two massive differences between these two groups of people. And Did that travel through to beyond design, to like business and practice? Yeah, or was it just totally. Every aspect of it. Yeah. They were so, it was the, the entire notion of what an architect was and how they had this kind of identity about themselves was very clearly based in we are not like those other kinds of architects. There was no kind of rivalry. It was just complete separation. But the understanding that a lot of buildings have to be designed, but there's these clients who really want it to just be cheap and quick. And there are these architects that can customize buildings and do these kinds of things, um, which make up a large part of the industry. And then there's this other side of people that really want to do um, outstanding projects that are going to make their business famous or get more customers into their store, usually on the higher kind of corporate level. But on the residential level, it was we want something that's just super customized for our family, the typical kind of thing you expect from the architecture. They charge different fees. They structure their businesses differently. Two completely separate things. And in Australia, we've got one kind of thing. <laughs> I remember being... Um, it just made me think of two things. First was at a one of the breakout sessions in at the National um, Architecture Conference two years ago, RISC 2015, there was this session on education and was talking about business. The business came up as a subject and whether or not we should be teaching people, architects, how to be um, entrepreneurs or just business people mm. as a starting point. And one of the educators on the panel um, made a very good observation, which was, yeah, we should have business as part of our architectural education, but if we do that, what would we kick out? 
Mm. Because our curriculum is already chockers for five mm. years. We already it's hardcore. I just get it. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> it's really. It's ha- how do you add that? And so, and then the comment was added to that, which was to say that we want all architects, no matter what they end up designing or whether or not they end up in like designing kind of the humdrum buildings or the you know mm. the next amazing like, yeah whatever. whatever yeah, yeah. To all be products of design, to mm-hmm. all be have gone through an education that has made them value design, even if they're not necessarily producing it themselves, mm-hmm. even if their their expertise is in arguing with builders on site and they've never done mm-hmm. a sketch design process in their life, mm-hmm. we still want them to be products of the design philosophy, mm-hmm. which is an interesting mm-hmm. comment. But at the same time. I did this, my, the best subject I ever did at university was one with um, uh, Professor Paolo Tombezi. Did you? Were you in Melbourne? No. No. Um, Perth, of course. Yeah, Perth, sorry. Yeah. Um, so Paolo was, uh, this, is this amazing Italian, like classic Italian guy, talks at a thousand kilometres an hour and is bloody scary. And I would consider him a like a very close acquaintance or distant friend as as, I'm, as I've come out of university we catch up occasionally and we keep tabs on each other and he's interested in my career and mm. you know that sort of thing it's wonderful I'm still scared shitless of him mm. um, and he took this subject uh, as an elected called the political economy of design mm. and he looked at all that stack, huge cloud of things that surrounds architecture and if anything that's probably I can trace my interest in this side of things back to that subject. Mm. Um, and one of the things we did as a, one of the major projects was we looked at this bit of research. I can't remember. I can probably track it down, but I can't remember who wrote it. But trying to classify different architecture practices. And there were practices who were design architects, services architects, and delivery architects. Mm. And each one is kind of like it's a bit like the Japanese mm. thing we're talking about. Mm. That the design architects are the you know, the big names mm. and all the awards. Mm. The service architects are the ones who do good quality buildings. Um, they're not, they're probably not that flashy, mm. but they're all about working with um, repeat clients. Like it's, it's all about personal relationships and maintaining them across a career that spans a lifetime mm. um, and nurturing that and, um, being all about that relationship and then you've got the delivery architects that say right whatever you want we'll do it in less time than you need it to be done by Mm. like it's all about getting it done on time and on budget Mm. and so all this we did this whole research looking at all these things that happen in an architecture practice like how many staff you have and what level they have and how much you pay them and um, how many projects you go through in a year Mm. um, and what sort of marketing you do and all that sort of thing and each of those things will ideally will change depending on what sort of practice you are. Mm. It's like a design architect traditionally wants to hoard all the cool sketch design work to themselves. Mm. So the employees that he or she takes on are kind of just cannon fodder. Yeah. Like they're there to generate the yeah. renders and then be spat out 12 months later. And it doesn't matter because all they're doing is renders. The service architect wants to have staff hang around for a long period of time mm. because they are as much part of that client relationship as, you know, the principal is. And you don't want to have to – you have a very specific way of working. And so when you train someone up, you don't want to lose them. And so those practices are generally typified by higher salaries, more experienced people, 
and they've all been there for years and years and years. Yeah. And then you've got your delivery architects that are, again, more like cannon fodder, but from the other point of view, they get paid really, really well, mm-hmm. but they get worked like a dog mm-hmm. or dogs and then um, get spat out and don't do anything like wonderful work out of it, but they all make plenty of money yeah. and just like, you know, cut yeah. as many corners as they can to get to the end goal. Um, it's really interesting. And that's... Yeah. Like, on the one hand, I get the argument that we should all be products of design, but I also get the argument that it's important to have people who aren't interested in producing design. Yeah. Industry needs that. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that, that two-speed architecture degree might be a good thing. It's something that, it, it's something that works there because it's traditional. There's a long, long time that behind that, long time behind that. Yeah. So, there isn't that sense of... Um, there isn't a sense of strangeness to that mm. or this idea of um, having to define these edges. Just, just go for the same amount of time? I don't know the detail on that and there's probably some people that have lived in Japan for a long time on this podcast who are just like, ah, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But it's, it was something, I, it's something that, yeah, I just got the sense that they... Um, the way it was described to me was that it's obvious that we aren't designing most of the buildings around us right now. Kind of like we are with other industries. We go, you know, there's a lot of things that just aren't an architect's just not going to get involved in those on principle, on economics, on heaps of different reasons. But for them, they were just like, yeah, even these custom design buildings and these kinds of towers and those sorts of things, we don't do those. Um, and... I think one of the characteristics of those Japanese architects that were in that design kind of camp was that they had a real international aspiration. I don't know whether that's something that applies in that analogy that you were describing of those three different types, Mm. that there's one type that wants to be famous everywhere in the world. And that might be something that's unique to them. Well, there's definitely a culture in Japan of generating like remarkably young star architects who go on lecture circuits and you know I've chatted before about yeah. um, Tezuka and how yeah. like well how old is he 50? 50 and he's touring for most of the year yeah. you know sitting on juries and yeah. and guest professoring at universities and guest and giving lectures for mm. packed out audiences yeah. year round and that's probably rare, not just in, like, it's very rare in Australia, obviously. Yeah. Or non-existent in Australia. Yeah. But it's probably rare for the rest of the world. If you think about the big international names that we get here, they're big international names. Yeah. Like, they're your Rem Koolhaases yeah. and your Peter Zumthors, who are actually, have already, have been practicing for 30 or 40 years and are now mm. kind of super famous, which is the European tradition, I reckon. Mm. It takes that, like, you get to that older age, that kind of... Glenn Merkett age yeah. where you then go okay I'm an elder states person totally. of this I travel and I speak and I'm trying to influence a new generation but you're saying that it looks like Japan has a thing where it happens a lot younger or that perhaps I really don't like that this is a second podcast where I've run the whole thing into Tezuka again <laughs> I really I really don't want it to kind of be Just about that guy be reflecting on your own psychological hang-ups at uh, time then. yeah look I don't know that was a bizarre experience for me and it's so unlike anything I've seen in Australia and I can't point to anyone in Australia who is on that kind of trajectory or is even interested in those kinds of things. The thing that Nick pointed out in the last podcast was that 
you know, maybe that's just not, not even a very good way to do things. Going out there and just kind of going and speaking at, um, you know, Harvard Design School and then going and speaking at the UNICEF and then doing this and that and that and crossing the world and giving these lectures and hoping that a mayor is going to be there or a head of an education, uh, you know, department of government is going to be there and something's going to happen for you and you're going to get a really, really big multi-million dollar project. I wonder, though, about the people that come and speak in Australia, the, the, the international architects who come and talk at our conferences. Is life for them a string of journeys to small countries like Chile and Macedonia and New Zealand and they're just on this circuit of giving conferences and they live their life in an airport? Uh, in small, medium, large, extra large, yeah. as in the book. Yeah. Maybe it's not in that one. One of the early... Oh, my books probably before even AMO was born. Um, there was like a series of graphs about the number of days that Cool House spent away from home. Yeah. And it was like in the 200s. Yeah. Year after year. Yeah. And you, know, you can't have a family that way. You no. can't. I think Australia is a bit provincial. Yep. There is that. There is definitely that. We're in the, yep. the arse end of the world and... Um, that makes us a bit a bit scary to think about trying to compete in the States or Europe or, mm. or Asia or mm. not necessarily Asia but yeah. Japan yeah. Like with their super established super design yeah. focused architecture yeah. um, cultures um, so there's a little bit of that but I also think there's that that's both a maybe a bad thing but also a good thing mm. in that we have a I feel like this. I feel like this is emerging critical regionalism in Australia, or maybe there always has mm, been. Mm. Um, Do you ever read about that theory from Kenneth Frampton in your evening? I'm sure I would have, but for the listeners, for the listeners, I don't say about it years and years ago. Yeah, it's basically about the idea that you know some cultures produce architects, yeah. and other cultures produce like dozens of architects who are all doing amazing work. And there's a lot that they have in common. And so there's this kind of critical mass mm. that defines a regional practice of architecture. Mm. Like there's only one Frank Gehry in all of the United States. And if there's anyone else who does anything similar to that, it's basically a Gehry ripoff. That's not part of a critically regional culture. Whereas Japan probably does have maybe mm. both. Mm. Spain is very mm. critically regional. Like there's yeah. a lot of really great architects. Yeah. And you can kind of be forgiven for not being able to distinguish between their work. It's not happening in Melbourne, I reckon. There's a lot of very interesting... It's totally happening in Melbourne. ...textural work. Totally. Like, how many architects are doing exposed brick and, and you know, beautiful timber and a lot of steel and yeah. thinness of things? And yeah. That's now, like, that's de rigueur to, to do that work. Yeah. Maybe there's a bit of copycatting going on. Yeah. But that doesn't exist in, you know, California. Yeah. It doesn't exist in Paris. No. So it's probably not a I reckon it's not a bad thing. I reckon it's good because as a culture, we're all kind of egging each other on in yeah. maybe one particular yeah. direction. Yeah. But I think there's maybe some value in also maybe it's not about an individual yeah. Melbourne architect suddenly jumping onto the international stage, but it's about Melbourne suddenly becoming having this awareness that Melbourne is the place to um, be as a designer and you know places like Harvard and whatever they're exporting mm. American design culture mm. because everyone around the world wants to go study yep. at Harvard or yep. MIT or whatever yep. and then they go and take those ideas back with them and that's totally. how that happens totally. it doesn't really happen in Australia no. 
But maybe it will. Maybe. Um, I know, you know through my contacts at um, House and through our um, relationships there, is that they've been saying that they feel like um, a lot of their clients, as in their architect clients in other parts of the world, are looking at Australia. Hmm. And maybe not so much in a overt way, but in a subtle way, because they are, you know everyone's works on Instagram hmm. and on house and whatever they are looking more and more at us. Eventually, that will segue into gazillions of TED talks and hmm. all that sort of yeah whatever. If you go and, if you take Instagram for example, and you go and look at um, accounts like Reba, a Reba account, or you look at Art Daily or Design, there there aren't bigger channels than these. Yeah. You go on their account, and look at who they're following. You're looking at six or seven hundred people. About a third of them are Australian firms based in Melbourne. And for, for the size of our country and the size Phenomenal. of the city, yeah, the, city. the number of. Um, the number of times you see those big agglomerator sites publishing Australian and Melbourne architecture, mm. I mean, like someone, should do an, yeah. someone should do yeah. an analysis in the last thousand posts from Arc Daily yeah. Yeah. and work out how many have come from Melbourne. I bet you it's more than... Per, like per capita, per capita population is like four Arc Dailies a week yeah, or something. That's, that's my next blog that's post. Nice job. Yeah. Imagine the things that House must know about the way Australians engage with architecture in terms of the, the data and analytics of it, how firms perform. I even found that when I was starting to work with a, a kind of growing architecture, architecture Instagram account, I started to pick up just from the insights I had on my own photos I was reposting the exact kinds of architectural trends that were just like instantly effective. Tell me what, because I have oh, similar Matt, insights. I've got screenshots all over the place of if like where these images line up together, organized by whatever kind of metric you want to look at. And it's like you're looking at a taxon- taxonomy of seven of the exact same project. They're all different projects, but you see they all have this exact same repeated triangle thing with the mesh and the thing. And then it's exactly all sudden, what I found. The yeah. photos that do really well on our Instagram account are the ones with like pure geometries in them. Yep. Like a rectangular plinth with the yeah. triangle sitting on top of yeah. it. They're often like one point perspective, very simple images. Mm. And it's because they've got to look good mm. on a screen on Instagram. the size of your hand. I, I attribute that to the runaway success of the Tasmanian cruise um, and particularly amazing photography by Ben Hosking and a few. There's a few real people that are doing. They're, they're not. We're not talking about the buildings, but the way that they're represented, and that they're thinking about that two-inch screen. Nothing else. They've gone magazines. They'll be their thing. Arcday will be its thing. We're just going to really, really work on this two-inch screen. We're going to produce two-inch screen architecture, and it's just. That's a good thing or a bad thing? I don't think it's hurting anyone. I've noticed I was talking to an art gallery owner recently um, who came in and um, inquired about doing a project with with her, um, like renovating a house. And I was commenting, it must be a tough gig to be in these days. And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, all I, tough gig. All I hear about, and I, it's not like I have my ear really super close to the ground on the art scene, but I get this impression that a lot of galleries are closing yeah. or like joining forces, which basically means one of them's closing. Yeah, sure. Um, and she was saying, yep, pretty much. And, um, <clears throat> and I asked her what why she thought it was the case and she thought that that there is a, a pool of collectors in, in Melbourne or Australia who um, buy a lot of art 
but that age group is just getting older and older and older. They're not getting filled in with younger ranks of people. Mm. And I reckon if that's because the younger ranks of people get their art fix on Instagram, mm. which is changing the way people are, in, are getting into art, like all the super hyper-successful art accounts, are <laughs> the ones that do like photorealism, mm. like I love photorealism. I love looking at something that's been drawn in charcoal that looks mm. like it's, you know, a microscopic examination of a shoe or something. Like it's mm. extraordinary. Mm. But... It feels like the, I guess the more academic qualities of art, or the the scholarly, literary, mm. um, thoughtful mm. narrative that drives art practice traditionally, mm. doesn't translate to the two inch screen, mm. and so it's actually transforming art practice. Have you heard of C J Hendry? She's a she was a Brisbane architecture student who had a bit of a passion for drawing, mm. and she. Um, decided to, to kick architecture after like a year or two yeah. and give she gave herself 12 months to see if she can make a go of it as a as a pen artist mm. she draws with like felt tip pens yeah. she does these super size photorealistic drawings and um, I think uh, the the cool hunter yeah. came across cool. her she has no website yeah she has no representation in any galleries anywhere yeah. she just had an Instagram account and yeah. cool hunter came onto her did a thing on her and then Kanye West um, bought one of her paintings. Mm. And in the first year alone, she made like a million dollars of income. Mm. And now she's like relocated to New York and is has hundreds of thousands of followers on, on Instagram. Yeah. She did an exhibition here in Melbourne that basically sold out even before it was even a thing. Yeah. She did and she did something like fifty it was like fifty foods in fifty days. Yeah. And every day she painted a picture of a food on a Hermes plate. Mm. Did fifty of them. And sold each of them for like eight thousand dollars, no commission because she doesn't. She has no representation. It's crazy. Like it's crazy money. It's crazy. And I think it's interesting what she does. Yeah. But it's transformation. Yeah. That sort of superstardom. Yeah. Was never possible. It used to be like artists would go and teach, and they would have grant um, money, and they would have residencies, and yeah. they would like there was this kind of whole like they were supported by the university function. Mm. Now people like Hendry are supported mm. by mass market media yeah. like the cool hunter like yeah. that's it Can you make, like it's totally different it's I reckon cool. the same thing might be happening to architecture maybe. good I don't know ah, good I mean haven't we been calling for something new to happen something to change for a really long time and if some 25 year old architect <laughs> if some 25 year old architect decides oh, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna leave architecture school and I'm gonna start drawing my designs for a house and then so, somehow Kanye West finds them on Instagram and says hey man I'm gonna build that house as my studio then all of a sudden he's got a mil- he or she has a million and a half followers We'd all be looking at that and going sensational, but no, actually, I think we'd all be pretty bitter, yeah, totally. and we'd be yeah. like, "No, that's bad, bad architecture. They're not allowed to do that. They're not. They haven't paid their dues in this sort of hierarchical industry, um, where time served is kind of a big amount of proof about how good you are." That, I don't know. That's a that's a, like a twenty four year old going. It feels this way to me because like I don't feel that. I don't feel that people my age um, come out of uni and feel independent. We feel extremely dependent, and there's even a shortage of really, um, really sort of dumb, overeager young people like me that will even just hazard it and just try it. There, I don't, I don't see a, a big number of those either. I think everyone feels you just, you just need to go put in an enormous amount of time. Whenever I've um, 
I've always been interested in that subject about how students think about the industry. Mm. And in guest lectures that I've given at Melbourne and RMIT and in design studios that I've run, I've kind of asked questions like, <laughs> hands up who um, has an Instagram account? And you'll get like a third or a half of people putting their hands up. Probably the other half have Snapchat. And then you say, well, keep your hands up if you use that account in any way, shape or form to kind of connect with architectural culture. And basically everyone puts their hands down. Mm. Like a tiny percentage, a tiny, tiny percentage of students are on Instagram for architecture. That boggles my mind. Mm. Shouldn't it be the youngest of a cohort that are embracing new technology for particular aims? Mm. And I feel like they, like a really switched on architecture grad with who's all over Instagram and is going to the right events will land a job quicker than you can even it doesn't even matter what their portfolio is it doesn't matter at all because it's about their personality and when we look for people we're not looking for of course like the portfolio is important but more important is how does that person gel with us Hmm. and we get so many dear sir or madam letters from the rest of the graduates who just think I need a great portfolio I need to put in my great you know they send us their transcripts I couldn't give a shit about transcripts yeah you know it says you're an H1 student great yeah, cool. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, but it's not like it's going to land you the job. It's probably mm. not even going to land you the interview. Like, mm. I want to see personality. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and then when I asked design students, um, I remember asking, I was only 15 students in one of my studios once. I said, you know, how many would work for free? And everyone said, no, never do it. And then I said, you know, how many would work for free for a big name architect or for someone who would, you know, guarantee you registration within a certain period of time or something along those lines and then they suddenly started becoming more interested but it was still very cautious really conservative mm. it was mm. I have these milestones I need to get through it's not a, there was no interest in disruption there was no interest mm. in you know taking the bull by the horns and, mm. and doing something crazy which is I think I don't know what do you think about that I mean is that a, that, that conservatism, in a way, stems from the fact that generally architecture, unlike art, unlike graphic design, unlike music, unlike a lot of almost every other creative pursuit, needs people who are going to pump hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars yeah. into something that you have designed. Yeah. Kanye might go and spend $20,000 on some unknown artist's amazing drawing for Brisbane, mm. but he's not going to spend $20,000 on that person's house. Yeah. It's like it, there's this conservatism that is ingrained, I think, in the fact that we're making cities. Like it's Economically, it makes sense. It's really, really serious business. The closest thing I've thought about that and the closest thing it reminded me of was I watched this documentary on Netflix <laughs> called The Mars Generation. It was about these like 12 or 13-year-olds that are already sort of training to be the astronauts that go to Mars. Oh, and, cool. and they go into these, um, they, they build little rockets and try to protect an egg inside and they do all these simulations and they're so dead serious and passionate and then the people that are running the whole program kind of say to the camera we haven't really told them that there's a pretty good chance we're not going to have a mass program in their lifetime we don't tell them that because if their enthusiasm and their talent and their smarts go on unfertile ground we just don't give them anything out the end of that we're losing a generation of enthusiasm for space and science. 
And it felt to me like that was kind of the feeling of architecture school, where it's so much about cultivating this passion, this excitement, a broad range of interests in the best scenarios. I know a lot of the time it isn't like that. But then you come out and the people that are already out tell you there's nothing going on out there we're not going to Mars um, and you feel that way a little bit as a graduate and you come out and you go oh, it's actually not that interesting I think that is I think you've hit the nail on the head about you know generating or, or, or raising a generation or successive generations of architecture grads who are passionate about going to Mars because I, I look back at my education and I think about when I started my degree I was dumb and massively naive. And when I came out, I was still dumb and massively yeah. naive. But I had this passion for the built environment. Mm. I can't tell you where it came from. Mm. I don't know which design studio taught it or which other class, but somehow in that well, eight-year period for me, mm. somehow I was transformed. Mm. I metamorphosized in that period and became an advocate for the built environment and other environments, like the natural environment, and I cared about climate change, and it just somehow emerged within that education, and I think that is absolutely essential. Mm. Maybe the trick is it's not about... To extend your analogy, mm. all that time I've been told that I'm going to Mars... Mm. And maybe there isn't Mars happening, maybe there isn't, but mm. at the end of it, if somehow the education can successfully transform my interests to Jupiter and Saturn and mm. Mercury and Venus as well, mm. like that's the key. And I don't think that's happening at all. Mm. Like we don't, the, the profession and the industry, the universities really couldn't care less about people like you. Mm. I mean, you're still involved in the architecture mm. profession, but you're not making buildings. No. And you're probably only one step removed from a practicing architect. There are people who are 10 steps removed mm. who are doing really interesting things, mm. um, who are involved in design or they're, you know, they're in government or they're commissioning bodies or they're just using their skill sets. Mm. And I think that's actually really exciting. Mm. I think that's the, the new Mars, mm. this diversification of what our skill sets can actually mm. result in. Mm. I don't think we're really capturing that well yet yeah. or rewarding it yeah. or even maybe even acknowledging it. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but somehow I, I know nothing about it. I know almost no one. Yeah. I know of people who haven't gone into architecture, but it's usually project management. Mm. But I don't really know of architects who have gone into things that are like they're kicking ass in mm. like arts festivals or they're now filmmakers or, or they're maybe they're like these extraordinary sort of consultants to banks around the world because yeah. their architecture skills prepared them as you know whatever we don't, yeah we don't we like to speculate know. on that but we don't know if it exists yeah, we and don't know. certainly i never got the impression that, that was an opportunity for me yeah coming out of university yeah. did you ever get told that you might like being something other than a registered architect is awesome no <laughs> Yeah, sorry, go. Um, There was a marketing campaign a little while ago, like an ad campaign from um, the Chartered chartered Practicing Accountants organisation, whatever they're called. I'm not sure if you remember. And it was like, what can a CPA do for you or something? And it was just showing these CPAs who presumably studied some sort of commerce and then went and specialised in accounting, which from all outward impressions is a pretty dry kind of mm. educational pathway mm. and these people uh, were shown in these ads as being like key decision makers in 
open cut mines and in factories and in unlike you know huge transport logistics organizations and they were like key players in all these industries I thought it was the most genius ad campaign because it did two things. One, it said to all these unrelated industries, what can a CPA do for you? Hmm. And suddenly those people, if the campaign's successful, going, let's see if we get a CPA on board. Let's see how they can transform our organization. Hmm. And B, it was telling all these CPAs that they didn't have to go out into accounting firms. Hmm. They could go and do these, this crazy stuff all over the world hmm. and build airplanes if that's what they wanted to do. Yeah. There's never been that sort of successful, like that dual level. Like, what can an architect do for you, and what as an architect can you do? Mm. It's just make buildings. Yeah, that's all it is. We need a Mars mission. I think this, the space analogy. I I love it because it's it's all just this big pointless aspirational thing. It's not pointless. No, no, not pointless. Um, but that's what science is. It's about pursuing things for the sake but of pursuing them. Exactly. They're going, we're pursuing something here. It's it's the kind of Kennedy speech where he goes, not because it's easy, but because it's hard and we're going to do all the other things. And there's people like Elon Musk who talk about that's what we miss right now. It's actually having something that's an entire human accomplishment that we all need to work together on and it's going to make us all better for it and we'll have a reason to get up in the morning. And I firstly think that architecture which is, has a similar sort of asp- aspirational quality to it that CPAs don't have. Like, I think we own a, a closer parallel than that. And there isn't this sense that we've got some vision of what we're working towards and what we want everyone to contribute to. We, because of that, we don't care particularly about the, the next generation as much as we perhaps should and this idea that we are just kind of building one more step towards that goal and we might not be the ones who get there but the next generation will and so let's make sure that their interest is put in and involved in this thing and the other reason that it's a similar comparison is just the amount of money that's involved and this idea that you can't be an astronaut just because you want to be it, it requires stakeholders but there's this idea of and in that documentary one of the one of the kind of teenagers was going I know I'm not going to be flying to Mars but if I what I really want to work on is the heat protection on the left hand fin of some rocket and 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 the general vibe is that was his goal was just to contribute to putting one person on Mars that's not going to be him and you say hidden figures no what's that oh it's a film quite a romanticized film about the space the Kennedy space mission yeah but um I think Kennedy Anyway, the, the space race between America and Russia, Kevin Costner and um, uh, I can't remember the rest of the actors' names, but it's about a bunch of black women in, like, 50s and 60s America, I guess, who, like, totally destroyed stereotypes yeah. and became absolutely crucial because of their mathematical abilities to the space program mm. um, and um, it's a very it's a great film good film but um, they had no desire to be astronauts no but they were passionate they had something pulling them and driving which is how I feel about architecture yeah like, there's a lot you of do. shit you do I think probably That's a lot of architects do but maybe they just express it in different ways like there's so much crap we have to go through as architects yeah totally totally if I could give away town planning tomorrow I would do it in yeah instance. totally I think there's you know, there are skills to be generated there and I think it's good having the cut and the thrust of it and it's not like I want to palm I do it because I feel like I have to be good at it but it's so painful but the thing that sustains me is the fact that the building is like really exciting yeah um, and I think that's what drives all architects uh 
maybe what you're just inferring there is that idea that maybe architecture as a general pursuit yes. can be more than just like beautiful houses mm. um, and that we can like collectively build towards that in each like you know each of us puts mm. one brick on a wall there's mm. a million bricks or there's there's you know, the next edifice <laughs> it's know. a little it, it, it kind of falls apart when you actually talk about what we're putting together at the end of it the whole the whole comparison just I think you said it really nice a bunch of like a bunch of nice houses is kind of but, but well, that's we, been the we have that of yeah, yeah. forever. The, yeah. the, the, the best architecture are beautiful one-off homes. Yeah, um, and one of the drafts in my blog list is yeah. called "Redefining the Metrics of Success." Yeah, and I think we're very bad at broadening the horizon of what success means. I think a really good, you know, you think about the houses that get awarded each year. Like, mm. Indigo Slam in Sydney. Mm. It's an amazing building. Mm. But if you give me $20 million and this extraordinary site, and you don't know, I bet you I could, or any architect yeah, with could slam, interest could slam it, right? Yeah. Like that's basically a no holds barred, let's go and make a work of art at the scale of architecture. Yeah. You can have all the time you want, all the resources you need. Go do something extraordinary. I think Smart Studio might disagree with you on the on the ease of. Yeah. I'm not saying easy, <laughs> but you throw enough. But time it's a big opportunity. It's a well. I think that it's like how hard is it for Ferrari mm. to make an extraordinary car? Mm. I'm not saying making extraordinary cars is easy, but Ferrari, that's what they do. They so, make supercars, right? Yeah. So for them to go and release a new car that's worth a million dollars and is going to be sold to 50 people around the world, mm. that's kind of their bread and butter. Mm. If every car awards program mm. based their and now like they based their awarding process on just extraordinariness, a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or an Aston Martin or whatever yeah. or a Bugatti or a Whatever they would win every year, yeah. But when you look at car awards programs, they never do that. In no. fact, those cars very rarely get those awards because, like the RACV, what does one wheels do one, and they break it into categories. Yeah. And when you go and award the best small hatchback category or whatever under fifty thousand mm. dollars, um, the way they go and scale the assessment criteria is different from the best luxury sports car. Mm. And the Porsche might win the best luxury sports car because performance and handling and um, styling and fit and quality are like ramped up as the most important values. Yeah. And things like boot space and economy <laughs> and whatever you know, are ramped down. Yeah. But for the best small car under $20,000, it's going to be all about... Um, how frugal is this car? Mm. How much stuff can you fit on the back? How versatile is the back seat? Can you stick your iPod into it? Mm. I think architects need to do that. And yeah. not just for our buildings, but for our people. Yeah. Like what about, you know, champions of um, gender equity or yeah. people who are making the most difference at a regulatory level or, you know, the best outcomes for events. Architects never award events like yeah. There are other organisations that do, yeah. but Open House Melbourne is probably the biggest, most important thing that as a community architects offer to the public, yeah. and architects kind of don't say anything about it. Like, we all like to be involved in it, mm. um, but we all see that as it's kind of, it's a bit, it's just for the public to mm. enjoy, and we'll concentrate <laughs> on our own awards programs, mm. but OHM should bloody be winning everything, yeah. because they're doing more for to promote the good name of architects than probably the rest of the profession combined. Yeah.
we should do more of that. Definitely. Although I was just watching the Putin interviews yeah. and he was kind of laughing at the comparison where at the end of um, Obama's administration, they started giving each other medals. And it's the same thing that happened just before the collapse of the Soviet Union. They just had these big gatherings where the leadership would just give each other awards. And <laughs> Putin thought it was the ultimate sign that that administration had basically failed to enact the kind of changes that it wanted to make when it started just redefining how it self-congratulated. Yeah. And there's a root... It's, it's a completely tenuous link, but it's, it's an interesting idea that... That, that idea of how the industry awards and recognises and champions itself and that being the primary tone of the discussion, not our discussion, but like an industry discussion because no, it comes up a lot. Like what do we recognise? What do we like champion, advocate for? And it's, it might be the idea that the entire frame of that conversation is indicative of the whole thing about to be falling off a cliff. So if Obama had extraordinary aspirations to achieve gender equity and climate change action and nuclear disarmament. Mm. Let's say they had three goals Mm. and let's say they failed on all of them and so instead they said... Let's award the guy who put the most number of hours in. Yeah, <laughs> so ridiculous. he's putting a medal over Joe Biden's neck and just solemnly like, oh, what a what a good guy. What a trooper. What a trooper. Yeah. He's really made a difference, and it's that last, um, it's that last disappointing part where you, it's the last of your control. It's the only thing left that you can do is give yourself something like that. But my question is, what are architects? What's the architecture of professions? Climate change. Um, uh, nuclear disarmament and yeah, gender equity. No idea. What do you think it is? Yes, so there are some. There's a lot of issues. There are issues. Yeah. Housing. Yeah. Affordability. Yeah. Um, would be one of them. But we don't really reward that. No. Like we have multi-res awards processes and whatever, mm. but. Um, and you know, basically, breathe has taken out everything recently, yeah, yeah. which I think is a really good thing. It's a great thing. Uh, but you know, achieving effective change at a national or city level on housing hmm. um, involves much more than just the making of buildings, hmm. and we don't really recognise any of that stuff. Hmm. I would argue that. I totally see where you're coming where you're coming from. That if you have a whole series of agendas in place and you just fail on all of them, you just lower the bar on what success means because mm. you've got to do something, right? Yeah. You, feel, you can't like feel like like leave everyone feeling like they just did a terrible job. Yeah. Maybe. Whereas I think we're not even at that step. We I don't think we've even articulated what our shared goals are. Yeah. And maybe it's sort of flipped in that instance that if we can start redefining what success means, yeah. we'll actually start identifying what that success is. Right now, yeah. we just say, what's the coolest house? Yeah. And we don't even get a big body of people to decide that. We get, like, so many of the awards programs, yeah. only one awards program in Australia involves the jury visiting the buildings. Now, I have a lot of respect for a lot of those awards programs. Yeah. We, enter them because we know that they're great marketing opportunities and everyone likes a pat on the back Mm -hmm. and I'm grateful for the the recognition we've received Mm. you know disclaimer Mm. but everyone's great at the magazines and they're all good people yeah that's right right. (laughs) thanks guys cheers guys you're the best but at the same time it's sort of a bit ridiculous that only one actually experienced only one set of jurors 
experience the building that they're judging when mm. what we're judging is buildings. Mm. It'd be like the car guys yeah. saying, oh, which is the nicest picture of a car? Yeah. That's exactly what it would be. Yeah. I, there was this article, have you come across um, Alan Davies, the Melbourne urbanist? No. He writes a blog for Crikey um, okay. that just looks at urbanism and um, architecture sometimes. But he wrote this kind of opinion, this sort of short opinion piece at the last awards thing last year that was very critical of our awards programs. Mm. And he said, I just, I still don't get why these architects are still bloody awarding these programs mm. with no interest whatsoever in what it's like to experience those buildings. Mm. None of the programs interview the owners of the buildings. Mm. There's no post-occupancy evaluation. Mm. There's no discussion about whether or not that building achieved the most amount of building for the least amount of buck. Mm. Like None of our programs look at that stuff. And he was basically saying it's just yet another example of us putting our blinkers on and saying, and I think it's the Obama thing, Mm. we maybe, maybe our ambition is to control the building built environment and we can't do that so we're just going to mm. award the nicest house mm. and i want the nicest award, photo of a house as well sometimes nice now i want the award of the nicest photo of a house as much as anybody mm. um <laughs> but when i put my business hat on and when i put mm. my creativity hat on like yeah. my creator yeah creative professionals hat on but when i think about the bigger picture of what the architecture profession is i think that's probably actually a good example mm. of us just giving Joe Biden a medal because he was a great guy. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, well, look, yeah. let's, what would we, what would we, how would we change that? How would we... I don't know. I mean... I don't know. It's like, um, it's, it's a large economic um, machine, the way cities get built. And they're really complicated, and I think they're more complicated than any individuals understand. And it's kind of like you mess with them at your peril. It's 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 like how could a bunch of us go on our stockbroking accounts and change the price of West Farmers? Or it's just it's it's a big thing. It's a massive well, a massive example, thing. Though. Like disruption is activist investment might be somewhere to actually look. This idea that. A few powerful people can basically disrupt the management of a company and have huge. This idea that you invest in things in a rebellious way. Yeah, Greenpeace does that a lot now. Okay. When it was a little while ago, um, and this actually reflects negatively on what's happening in Sydney at the moment with the extra airport being built. Mm. But there was a third um, uh, runway at Heathrow being proposed, mm. and all the environmentalists and local community were up yep. in arms about it yep. because it was like. We're trying to decarbonise and you want to build more opportunity for aeroplanes. And so there was this whole community consultation process and so Greenpeace built bought a Mm. parcel of land Mm. so it could be party to proceedings. Mm. And in the end, and they ran a competition that we entered um, years and years ago. We didn't get anything for it. But um, looking at ways to basically build a, a... an activist um, bunker on this plot of land that would allow people to resist arrest. Mm. Um, and 
I thought it was genius. Yeah. If you want to object to something, you need to have your skin in the game. And so yeah. they went and bought, you know, a hundred thousand pound lot of land. Yeah. And then they had their skin in the game and they were now just hold out indefinitely on, yeah. on the thing happening. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> within, but they could object. Reason. They could yeah. as, as much of an objector as, you know, the mum and dad who were next door yeah. who were legitimately oh, you know, had their they have an enormous impact. Yeah. And so you know, our whole system idea. is built up to really protect the interests of the people around these I mean obviously not all, all the time but I've seen I've seen lots of examples yeah uh, where a single resident living in the neighborhood has had a huge impact on oh, the we project. face that all the time oh, well, not like, necessarily in a good way either. no 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 of course not but let's say that something um, something evil was happening architecturally or, or building wise this idea that perhaps you could kind of sneak in there and be that resistant you should see what happens with the Save Our Serious campaign in Sydney because I think that's um, I've been paying a lot of attention to it and I think that's probably the best example in the country of a group of architects um, becoming sort of social activists because the Save Our Serious campaign the chair of the board of that is Sean Carter who's the immediate past president of the state chapter and a great architect Um, and They've they had a Kickstarter campaign yeah. to uh, or like the, whatever the not for profit version of Kickstarter is to um, raise money for a legal fight. They've been trying to forge alliances with a whole bunch of developers in the area who are all required to provide um, social housing quotas, mm. and they've been trying to encourage them to buy the serious site as their social housing quota. Mm. As a, you know, they said, like, ideally we would like Lendlease to build their own social housing quota and Sirius stays as one as well. Mm. But as a fallback position, if we can get Lendlease to buy this, at least the building gets preserved yeah. and the social housing in it gets preserved as sort of, a, you know, a plan B. Mm. Very clever. Like, really not just picketing the building, not just, like, sending letters to local ministers, but actually playing at the level of government. Yeah. If they fail, it'll be really disappointing. And yeah. the legal, the result of that legal challenge is still pending. Mm. Um, if, they, if they're successful, it'll be such a huge win for the industry, mm. the profession mm. as a whole, mm. to say, actually, we can have an impact on the broader built environment. Mm. You know, all the efforts in Melbourne to um, basically petition the state government to mandate architects and to... Um, require minimum apartment sizes as part of the better apartments guidelines or standards that the Mm. state government has introduced. Really, the big ticket items that were mooted, they've all fallen down. Mm. Architects haven't been mandated. No minimum sizes have been set. Mm. Inevitably, those things are going to get watered down, but the things that were watered down were the things that were probably going to give architects the biggest seat at the table Mm. and being able to actually move on from that and go right we now have a really important role in delivering the outcomes yeah no design review that was the other thing they wanted to do no design review requirements Mm. and I think that's a real failing I think Mm. that's a real it's such a a pity that that didn't get up because Mm. a huge effort went into it from a lot of different Mm. quarters and it went nowhere Mm. maybe we're no good at lobbying I don't know but I guess we're trying to lobby without a budget right I mean we don't yeah there's a lot of volunteers doing it yeah. I mean, the Institute, that, that's one of their key roles, and they have people who do lobbying. Um, but Like external consultants, lobbying? Internal. Internal, um, okay. They have people who write policy papers and position statements for government yep. and submit, you know, submit responses to white papers and all that sort of yep. business. Yeah. But 
there haven't been any huge wins as a result of all that activity, mm. and it, which is you, know, you make, make of that what you will. Mm. But we've got a. Um, I, I feel like we are at an interesting time in the profession mm. as a big picture. There's a lot of, of that sort of activism happening, whether or not they're successful or not. I think will have a big impact on whether or not that continues to yeah. happen. Yeah. But there's also quite a lot of disruption. Yeah. Like you're a really interesting example. Thank you. I think there's, <laughs> I think you're one of a growing group of people mm. who are suddenly realizing that architects are starting to value business or marketing or mm. both mm. Um, and are offering services. Yeah. Five years ago. Yeah. Like when we started seven years ago, mm. I never even knew of. I don't mm. even know if people like you existed. Mm. Um, and now you're like you're one tackling it at a very in a very specific, very gung ho way, mm. as, as we were talking about before. Mm. Um, but you're not the only one, and I think that's a really good thing. Mm. I think that if the whole profession starts turning more to people mm. um, offering your sorts of services, mm. then as a collective group, we'll get better at what we do. Yeah, we should have talked about that earlier in the episode so that I got more coverage on that. <laughs> no one's well, lasted this long. If no, no, no they've, they've you can all, cut it. No, no, that's at the very beginning. Warwick, it's nice to uh, nice to be in the office. <laughs> do I think what job. you're doing is disruptive, and I wish I could use these kinds of services <laughs> how much you charge again what about Dude, i make it up as i go along um yeah it's it's an interesting it's an interesting one i don't know really there was nobody kind of coming along and consulting or doing little things look i i think one thing i've noticed in terms of i've been trying to understand my competition kind of retroactively i didn't come into this having worked for someone who did marketing or business or websites for architects or anything like that. I just came into it completely blank in a new city, didn't know what was around me, didn't know who else was doing these kinds of things. And I've tried to find out more about it as I go along. I see that there's a lot of entrenched PR communication people who help produce press releases for large firms and they do presentations and they help with media. Um, And that's I've seen a lot of that in the large firms rely on that but small practices when they need help with their business um, or how they get clients or how they communicate they tend to go to small branding agencies who advise them to kind of refresh their branding to make their office nicer to visit to kind of improve how they present themselves there's a lot of I don't know what you would call that kind of Consulting, or what the kind of outcome of that is. It's like etiquette training. It's like small business etiquette training. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it. When we were rebranded last year, we spoke to four graphic designers, and mm. one that we went with was the only one who really talked about graphic design as part of marketing. Yeah, good. Um, and a couple of the others actually specifically said, Look, we just want to, like, our passion is about finding ways of representing your brand in beautiful business cards and logos. Yeah. And that's our passion. They misunderstood you. They thought you were that kind of architect. Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> I was like, didn't realize. No, I want to spend thousands of yeah. dollars on your services, yeah. not because I've got nothing better to do with that cash. Yeah. I want to do that to help grow our business. That's yeah. It's an investment in our future. Yeah. And... Um, 
so a lot of conversation then ensued with our graphic designers, um, what's designed by the way, mm. um, around the idea of how can we engage people on the website? How do we put ourselves mm. front and center? How do we have a more engaging like contact form and you know, start yeah. project buttons and all yeah. that sort of thing? And everything is all about pathways that lead to people clicking on a link that yeah. signs up to a newsletter yeah. or sends us an email or whatever. That's all those pathway yeah. conversations. Not to say other graphic designers wouldn't think that way anyway, but I think it stems from that philosophy that um, the end goal is about being able to go on holidays mm. to exotic places with your family. Mm. Like, mm. I went to this um, conversation with Jerry Wolveridge ages ago and he talked about how, so, you know, I asked a lot of people why they get into practice and then people talk about authorship and autonomy mm. and blah, blah, blah. And he says, yeah, okay, fine. Everyone wants that. That's fine. But the real reason I went into practice was that I can take a month off every year with my family and go traveling. Yeah. That's why I'm taking the risk and the stress and the heartache of running my own practice. Yeah. And that transformed us because that was when we started thinking, putting money at the start of every month's conversation about what we're going to do this month. Mm. And I've written so much about that as, as a result of that sort of one insight. Yeah. It's okay to be the a producer of really amazing creative designs and also financially successful. Yeah. I think those have for a long time been separate. They're either-or scenarios, which is maybe... I mean, not that the mm. star architects of Japan mm. aren't ridiculously successful as well, but filthy that idea... Rich. Pardon? They're filthy rich. Yeah. But there's there's that idea, like, it's kind of the Hollywood thing. Only, only yeah. a very tiny group of people can charge $15 million a film. Yeah. Everyone else is off-Broadway yeah. getting 50 bucks a night. Yeah. Um, or waitering, because yeah. they can't even get yeah, off-Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... So there's, I think that's merging now. Yeah. And I feel like there are more and more people interested. And maybe it's because I'm constantly talking about it. Yeah. And so I'm hearing from those yeah, people. Sure. People saying, yes, let's invest in marketing. Let's think about um, practice management. Let's think about growing growth. Let's mm. talk to Dave about mm. Um, mm. his great services mm. for $49 a month. <laughs> oh, it's up from that now, buddy. <laughs> for us, that was, that was old that's, prices. That's, 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 all, that's, that's, uh, that's March prices. What are you talking about? <laughs> that's that's um, um, chump change. I'm try, I'm try, you know, I started in a certain place and then I've been easing... Um, potential clients and people that come to me into a wider range of possibilities when it first started it was what do you currently do in your practice and they said we do it we do instagram i was like right i I sell instagram services yeah but once we get through that point it's kind of like breaking in a horse a little bit they're they're now comfortable on their instagram and they start looking a little bit bigger they're going okay that's cool but I still don't. I still don't really have lots of clients coming, and we go. Well, we should probably start <coughs> talking about the problems on your website, and then the website gets addressed a little bit. Then we're like, okay, so now there's a little bit of a problem in how you actually remarket to people and keep a conversation with them over time and build trust, and and then you're not creating any content, so no one really knows anything about you, and it it, it starts to sprawl out from there. So that's where. Ideally, I'd love to be able to come in where people have this real fully fleshed out awareness of I need to be doing everything while I still have 
kind of time in, in the day, if I have time to do this, it's worth investing in it. And something you said at the business management course was you treat it like it's a project. You almost, I think that for you was setting yeah. up the admin of your office. But likewise, I got the feeling that these different business CEO roles you treat them really seriously and they're, and they're kind of um, separated from the, as if they're their own architectural project. They're, they're that important. Yeah, I mean, new business development is something that a lot of industries basically have entire roles built up, like entire departments totally. built around. Totally. My dad used to run a clinical research organization that did like, you know, all the sort of trials of new drugs and things. Um, and he had an entire department that probably represented... I don't know, like 10 or 20% of his staff just doing EOIs and chasing work and, and mm. you know, I presume, therefore, mm. that that entire department was basically an administrative cost. Mm. Um, and for us, I met like 50% yeah. of my time yeah. is admin. Yeah. And some of that is about invoicing and about, you know, um, not chasing new work but just kind of nurturing the old work yeah. but a big chunk of that is about Instagram and hows and marketing and, mm. and so on mm. what's I mean what's interesting about this lightweight nimble kind of world that we've been talking about mm. in this conversation and, and previously mm. as opposed to sort of having that PR person who comes in and writes out your press releases yeah. or have the person who um, you know the in-house graphic designer who does all of your awards boards which I think is exciting like I would love That's to cool. have a graphic designer on, on the nice. team to yeah. do that but yeah. Six Degrees does that because they've got God knows how many staff with six people we can't do it no. and so like you can sort of come in and offer that yeah um, um, yes, I did. I, when we had that big chat yeah, yeah, on Instagram, yeah, yeah. I massively changed the way I oh, run my Instagram. Yeah. And it's had great mm. results. Mm. Um, and I've actually been doing a lot of reflection on, on it. And I think the key thing for me is about authenticity. Mm. And I really like that idea. And mm. I think that when we, when we first started putting up other architects' photos on our Instagram feed. Everyone in the studio was really quite sceptical about it. I was, all, I was like, let's just bloody do it, man. Let's yeah. just chuck them up there. Yeah. They rang me in and said, we should tie it to ourselves. And I think that's where the authenticity has come in. So that's every good. time we do a series of photos, it's our because favorite it's, Australian architecture. It's our yeah, favorite. Yeah, it's because yeah. it, these are inspirations for this project, yeah. or it's um, yeah. an experience, a conference we've just been to, or yeah. it's always tied back to that authenticity. Yeah. I read this article subsequently to a conversation by Alexandra Lang, who's mm. a um, New York architecture critic. Mm. She's out here a few years ago. Anyway, she was talking about um, Instagram and other social media being the first layer of history. Yeah. Did you come across that idea? Yeah, this idea that bef- there was no record of anything before that. I, I've, I've not been... T- Let's talk about yeah. It's something we've talked about before. Yeah. The idea that I talked about it with Nick Groundley's actually. I must have read the same article, but it was that our parents and our grandparents history is just going to not. They're not going to exist. There's essentially no records of them. Unless you unless you're Napoleon or Winston Churchill. Yeah, unless you're unless you're that. Where you've got letters to your loved ones, yeah. which are then treasured. Yeah. It's like the written artifact. Yeah. Whereas now, what we're doing is we're creating constantly recording ourselves. Constant. Yeah. Um, Artifacts, yeah. and so the future historians who are now interested in yeah. what Dave or Warwick yeah. did, yeah. and what 
took them to greatness yeah. will look to our Instagram yeah. accounts, yeah, totally. um, which is why I've, which is why Instagram is so great. Like it creates this like chronological yeah. record, yeah. and you know you can go and trace that amazing work of architecture back to that like movie someone saw yeah. because they then went and posted it. So she yeah. she was actually exhorting architects to capture history yeah to say go and take photos of the things around the site that you thought were interesting don't mm. let that languish in a folder on your hard drive somewhere mm. or in your memory mm. um, if you go to an exhibition capture that stuff because as a historian when I write about you 10 years from now I want to know what you were thinking mm. and Instagram and I mean Snapchat's hard of course because it doesn't keep records mm. but Instagram's the best for that sort of thing really yeah. it has that that layer yeah. that it builds up which yeah. I think is really exciting yeah. and so that's why that authenticity has now become a value like I like the idea that Instagram is now an artifact in and of its own self yeah. that tells a story about what we are yeah um, and like who we all have our own like pop culture people that we're interested in whether they're like actors or comedians or musicians or whatever but I find it hard to think of anyone I really like and really appreciate who I can't spend an evening watching YouTube videos about or listening to interviews with or reading, looking through their Instagram. There's a certain level of um, internet depth to people that allows you to actually really kind of indulge yourself in that person's life if they're noteworthy or interesting. I can't think of anyone who's just essentially you put Google, put them into Google and nothing comes up. I think, I mean, I think we're all like that. I've often remarked that um, one of the downsides of architectural CPD events is that it can be about any subject you like, but the person who's presenting is the guy who just, or the girl who just won the award. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether or not they're interested in business or marketing or whatever the subject is. It's whether or not people are interested in knowing what that award-winning architect thinks about those subjects, mm. which is the same idea. Yeah. Like, we're all voyeurs. Yeah, exactly. And I think we would generally prefer to find out the opinions of someone who's who we value yeah. more than someone who um, knows about it. Mm. Mm. Like authority is boring, man. Yeah. It's basically yeah. what everyone thinks. We yeah. just which is that's a whole other problem that's why yeah. Trump is the bloody president yeah. of the United States of America that's a big problem um, you know there's and it's why I read your summary of the architecture conference and I don't buy a copy of Architecture Australia yeah I, I go two days after the event I know that up on your blog and on Twitter I'm going to click on it and I'm going to read down I'm going to find two out two days is ambitious I get this feeling like there's a there's definitely an arms race between like three the three active architects on Twitter to see who could give the most like thorough coverage and, and in the quickest space of time it was good but you yeah, it was good actually you, didn't your article come out like last week or something yeah. <laughs> practice yeah yeah, um, yeah that took me a month that's because yeah, I don't care what anyone. I mean, I don't care what anyone else says about the conference. I'm reading your blog, which I've read before several times, and I go, I'm interested in what this guy has to say about it. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to know the objective, like, and that's just the kind of fake news world we live in, and, and I like the fake news that you produce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I have all those individual citations. Those citations. Are, oh, they give it. A, they give it a kind of uh, a, a veneer, an academic richness that. <laughs> a veneer of academic. Yeah. The reason I actually have those yeah. citations in there was because I wrote a review of a great Richard Laplastria talk that I went to years ago. Talk about that, but yeah. And um, 
I got smacked. I got an email by um, the person who ran the talk saying, where did you get that photo from? And I said, oh, I took it of Richard there. I asked his permission and he said yes. And I used it. And she said, well, um, that was a protected private event. You weren't allowed to cover it. And so she said, and she backed off basically when I said, like, it was my own footage. Was that somebody from Architecture? Is that someone at the event that had basically... No, it, was a, it wasn't from that kind of Lindsay Johnson, no, Peter no, no, Stuchbury no. Those guys thing. are like... Oh, those totally guys are like... Openness. Badass, man. Share what So like. cool. Yeah. They're the best. They're the best. Uh, this was a, it was a Boyd Foundation yeah, okay, right. talk, but yeah. it was someone who was running this series of talks for the Boyd Foundation yeah. as part of a PhD. PR person. No, oh, no, no, she was doing a PhD. Oh, really? Was, like, was the thing. Yeah, okay, cool. Anyway, but I, um, I, I then said, all right, well, I better put my footnotes in. Yeah. Like, cite where I source the information from. And so then, from then on. From then on. Yeah, so you can see when, you can go back to that, um, if you Google the plastery on my blog. Yeah. Any article before that, no citations. No citations. Any article after that, citations. Like, it just got a bit more. I was talking to this with um, Steve the other day. We were talking about your blog. Mm. I did a bit of an SEO audit on your website. As in Panfilo or my slogan? Uh, Panfilo. Oh, yeah. Because that's what I was interested in. I want to see what what were you writing about out of these hundreds of articles that in terms of SEO was bringing more search traffic to your blog? It was Rick LaPastria. Oh, really? Rick LaPastria was – you were turning up massively for that in Google search results because – Basically, no one's written anything about him, guy. right? He doesn't have a blog. (laughs) And so, you come up and you've got pretty good domain authority. You come up like second or third result if you basically put Rick LaPasta into Google and it gets thousands of searches per month. Five, six, seven thousand searches per month for that. And there's nothing complete drought of content out there. Yeah. Um, So, there's something really... Uh, I know that your blog and your website aren't really targeting other architects or, you know, I, I remember someone was telling me that they did an analysis on a website of a really large firm or their, their website traffic and they found out that like 96% of it were architecture students. It's like nothing was coming from actual people, potential clients, the public. It was yeah. just architecture students who come on there to basically steal your ideas and do whatever they do. Yeah. And... Um, so, it is interesting when you start actually putting out content and the way that the pipes and systems of the internet works, that you can write stuff and there's a pretty high chance that nobody will read it. And then you write something else and all of a sudden you filled a gap that didn't exist, basically. And there's a sense of originality and that you actually served the pool of knowledge and then the internet rewards you for that and it starts bringing you all these people you don't think about that stuff right you don't you don't go you don't do an analysis of oh um life of an architect's latest post on uh, architecturally designed guitars is trending this month so i better write something no i couldn't be bothered no you don't do that um, kind of thing i mean maybe i should but i i just my the the time it takes me to write articles the is, time i have to write articles is so um so fragile as it is, if I wasn't writing about things that were pertinent and specifically interesting to me right now, yeah. it just would all fall apart. Yeah. Um, I remember very early on in the blog, I posted a photo of the Burj Khalifa, mm. you know, the tallest mm, town mm, in the world. Mm. It was about, there was, there was, it was an article about this mile high um, tower that had been proposed in Jeddah that never got built. And so I just basically stole a photo of the tallest tower in the world currently and pop, popped it up there. 
and it started ranking in Google Images. It was like on the first line of Google Images. Yeah. And I got, like, I think I got a thousand visits to the website on that day, which dwarfs the next highest by like a factor of five to one or something. Um, entirely thanks to that image. And then Google went, oh, wait a minute, this is a stolen image and then deranked me. Like, it's only like it took them 24 hours. You got just, caught for hashtag like, fake news and yeah, then you were, you were gone. Oh, well, they just obviously recognised that the image yeah. I put up there was exactly the same as another one that was already ranking highly and, yeah. they, just, and they just had an algorithm that probably just yeah. chewed it up and, and threw it out of their rankings. Um, and it, it's always made me reflect, as with Instagram, yeah. about the things that trend and the things that don't. Yeah. And we, the best photo we've ever done was when we announced a Master Builders Award that one of our builders, um, our builder for Joyful House won. And it was, I'd already posted a similar photo mm. um, some time ago, which did well. Mm. Um, but this photo's still getting likes. Yep. It's 700 plus. Mm. And I've got other photos that are, you know... I get this sense that once a photo on Instagram ticks over 250 or 300 likes, it then starts trending in the long-form hashtags. Mm. Like, it's not going to trend in hashtag architecture because no. you need, like, 20,000 likes to get in the top page. To get the top, top yeah. That. But hashtag Polish architecture, mm. now that Different is story. not talked about as much. And yeah. so when I posted a Polish a photo of a Polish archi- work of architecture that we like, it just kept on going and going yeah. and going. Yeah. And obviously it wasn't coming from my followers because no. that had been buried yeah. in distant history for them, but yeah. it was trending in this very niche little thing. Same idea. Exactly yeah. the same exactly thing. Exactly the same thing. Yeah. And I don't know, like I don't, as an expert in this, I don't know whether or not you know how to find those holes in the internet, yeah. but yeah. that's what they are. They're like little holes, little aerated bubbles in the internet. And if yeah. you can pop something in there, yeah. everyone gravitates to yeah. you. But if you're in the hard cheese section... Hmm. You're just surrounded by the little molecules of cheese and yeah. no one can find you yeah. for all the other stuff that's been in there. Yeah. You need to find the, the vacuums. I don't know how you track So, everything, everything I've done on... Because I try to be really uh, efficient with one person's labor, not a lot of time. But I try to be on everything, doing lots of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, I approach everything from that perspective of trying to find those little air gaps. Um, I've done that several times on Instagram. Then identified a bunch of photos that basically hit the gap every time and they have no competition, then put them on auto-rotate so that every 14 days the same images are posted again. I haven't been posting recently, but for a while there was a time where there was a set of five images that I knew that every single time I posted them would get five times the likes of any other photo month after month after month and grow the account significantly every time. That's where you just get a little bit kind of tactical. And it's the same thing with the blog. I recently did that 68 marketing ideas thing. And that's because... Great article. Thank you. Um, Architect marketing ideas is a fairly popular search term. There aren't a lot of architecture, marketing, business related search terms that have any kind of traffic. That one does. And it was extremely easy to rank an article for that. That article within 12 hours was like third in Google anywhere in the world for that search term. And so there's just examples of that where if you do actually approach it that way, you can save yourself a lot of time because I don't know how you feel about the idea of creating a piece of content. And I think this is something that steers away a lot of architects. The first six months that you do it, no one's going to read your blog. No one's going to join your mailing list. These things like just don't happen. Mm. But so you, so your real, your real energy behind it is it's a creative outlet 
it's a reason to make me leave the house, attend things, get involved in the industry. And like, we kind of leave it at that. But do you think that you're going to start getting analytical about the places that you put your effort? So, a kind of Tim Ferriss for our work week examination of where do I spend my time and am I actually getting anything from that and could I substitute that with something else? That's a good question. I have been thinking about it a lot recently and I know you advocate for recycling photos on Instagram and I've been thinking, do we do this? Um, like, is it something that we should start doing? And I certainly have repeated photos, but it's more just because by chance the new theme that I'm exploring mm. references the same photo, mm. like they both make sense and so I'll, I'll pull that yep. photo out. Um, and... I reckon that the short answer is yes in the right circumstances. Yeah. And the the thing that's pulling me back from that is, is that I mean, it sounds like this is like basically the most old fashioned thing I could possibly say. Mm. And that is, is that everything I do wants to be exactly. like a work of creative yeah. Yeah. art, yeah. right? Yeah. Be it a project or an Instagram account or a spreadsheet. Yeah. Yeah. And so my blog. And yeah. so I could go and turn the blog into a more traffic generating activity. Of yeah. Um, but it would in- involve basically dissolving the integrity of yeah. it as an artifact. Yeah. Because you would then go back and look at the last thousand posts on the blog and yeah. see that 800 of them are actually repetitions awesome. of each other. Yeah. And so that probably undermines. Totally. It, it overmines or like, like supercharges the mm. moment mm. and undermines the long-term legacy. Mm. And that's really the grapple with it, isn't it? Because mm. the internet mm. is not... Mm. Well, the internet is probably about both things. Yep. Like that long-term, yep. the backlinks and things that you generate to a website mm. and all of that, all the things that Google values mm. in terms of authenticity, mm. which is about like not just spamming the same thing over and over yep. again as, yep. as a version of yep. traffic. Yep. That's all about creating unique content, yes. high-quality content. Yeah. But at the same time, everything is super impatient and an Instagram photo syncs without a trace, even with Facebook's new fancy algorithms attached to it that prioritize high-quality, highly popular images. Yeah. Even still, like, if you get anything more than a week old, like that one amazingly popular image from a week, that's basically as long as Instagram's memory is. Yeah. That's short-term memory loss. That's, like, crazy. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I haven't yet. I haven't really gone and just... But I am... Like, with Instagram, we... I started an experiment where I changed the frequency of posting. Mm. I was doing it three posts a day when we first took on the new strategy. Mm. And then I went to two. Mm. And I thought I wanted to do a a month of two and then, like, a month of six to see Mm. what would get the most amount of... Mm. Like, where was the sweet spot? And I've been lazy because doing six a day just seems hardcore, like huge man. I couldn't do it, but I mean, potentially, if I was just recycling content, I definitely could. Like, I mm. could do like two weeks of six a day mm. or a month or whatever just mm. on recycle content because I don't have to find that information; it's already there. Mm. Um, and I do like that experimentation. I think you can do that with the internet, you, like, mm. and you do that all the time. You just throw something out there, yes, and if it gets traction it gets traction if yep. it doesn't you move on to the next thing yeah and i love that about instagram you can yep. put a photo out then if it doesn't trend so what do the so next what? photo doesn't matter you know exactly it's, it's 12 hours i've got another photo going yeah and, so. the, and the best part is that the way the internet works is that if you do a bad job it doesn't show it to anybody so there's yeah. no real embarrassment you <laughs> only you're only a popular disgrace 
Well, you're only, your work only gets seen and judged if it's good. Yeah, that's true. That's so, true. when I chuck something out and three people read it, I don't, I don't cry about that because, oh, good, three people think I'm a hack. They probably had an all right time still. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's, it's a really safe, it's a real safe space <laughs> to basically just go and, and, and I personally with myself, and this isn't something that I recommend for my clients because they've got... They've got those years of experience and that integrity and they've sunk a lot of time into approaching things in a certain way. Um, I'm, I sort of have kind of the luxury of starting out without too much baggage. Mm. There's always the risk that you start building the wrong kind of reputation by being a little bit lazy across multiple things and a little bit hacky and a little bit whatever. But I think as long as there's a sort of sincere feeling of, you know, I'm starting out, I'm trying to figure this thing out, I'm learning what works and what doesn't and, and trying to grow into something that I care about, you know, 10 years from now, how I'm kind of perceived. But I don't want to kind of set it all in stone right right now. Yeah. Um, and the kind of interesting thing I think... I think it would be good and, and part and parcel with being a little bit active on the internet for architects is actually embracing that uncomfortable feeling that there might be a little bit of bad word of mouth about you. That is super hard to to deal with as, a, as an architect and that's so different because if you're... It's, it's that old thing of if you're doing something the right way, you, like, you know, you're going to have people that don't like the way you're approaching it. And if you're pleasing, yeah. if you're pleasing everybody, you're pleasing nobody. And it's the same thing on the internet. And if you're putting out stuff that's just no one is talking shit about you behind your back at an institute event because of it, you're probably not doing enough and I'm sure like with your blog or even with this podcast there's plenty of people that would listen to it or read your post and go oh, this guy like, can you believe this guy can you believe him yeah there's probably like a few you know jealous bitter people or whatever but but you've kind of um you've kind of embraced this very sort of 21st century feeling of going like you know there are people that aren't going to like me and what I do on the internet but I don't let that get in the way of trying to do the most um, like that kind of aim thing trying to do the best for the most or whatever for the least you know that's the kind of that's the kind of vibe of it I um, I reckon I had this long conversation about this some time ago and it actually and I became much more conservative as a result of it but this conversation is making me think I should stop doing that Mm. and go back to my old, less conservative ways. Mm. But whenever I get a job application from a grad or whatever, mm. I, you know, unless we're actively seeking, I just instantly send a response back saying, thank you, but no, thank you. Yeah. You might find this article I've written for the blog interesting. <laughs> Dear sir or madam, and it just, it's like 10 tips on how to write a good application letter because so many of the applications are getting a Dear sir or madam one. Yeah. Anyway, I, would, I just send them out and I figure, you know what? If it gives them something, if yeah. they can, the next one they send is better, great. And if yeah. it drives traffic to the blog, great. Yeah. You know, it's obviously one person at a time, but that's all right. They're coming from all over the <laughs> Whatever. world. Whatever. It's no effort for me. I could just, mm. I just had a template that I would roll. Yeah. You know, then I sent it to this application, this guy in Poland, um, who was probably my age or old, so like 10 years in the industry or a bit more. And I sent this article to him, yeah. uh, this link to him, and he went off. He sent this email that was so aggressive mm. and so unbelievably rude. Like, I wanted to punch him in the face. It was so inappropriate. Yeah. Um, and so 
disgusting yeah. like, behavior yeah. that he sent to me. And like, I'd send it out of the goodness of my heart. He's like, how fucking dare you? You know, I, this is my third language. Like, how many languages can you speak, you asshole? <laughs> and like, this is the follow-up to a job application. So I'm like, oh, I'm glad I said no to oh, you. Oh, you made a good call. You yeah. <laughs> and so I wrote this very long email because it was all about how, um, you know, excuse me for not like getting it right in my third language. Yeah. Like, what are you, you idiot? You don't speak yeah. anything. Um, and I thought about just sending him a response with no content other than corrections to his English. Oh, it would have been the best. But I never said it. Definitely. He was a yeah. troll. He was yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. a troll. Yeah. He, he deserved yeah. to just be ignored. Yeah. But since then, I've really pulled it in for a fear of offending someone. But you're right. Like, I totally agree. That's generally my position. Yeah. That... Um, Apples and oranges idea. If I'm mm. talking about oranges, people who like apples aren't going to like what I'm talking about. Mm. But that's okay. Mm. This whole idea about tribal, mm. you know, activity, activity and social environments and the internet only mm. exists because people are not everyone likes everything. Mm. And if you talk very passionately about one thing, you're going to turn people off. Mm. And I totally agree with you. If you're not you're not doing your job properly if you're just vanilla. Like if mm. you're kind of – in fact, I just posted a, a quote from my rabbi mm. um, on the Instagram account the other day, which is – and he said in a sermon he gave a couple of yeah. years ago, it's hard to get passionate about the middle. Mm. Rabbis are the best. They're so oh. geniuses, right? But he it – it's exactly right. Like it's impossible yeah. – you're not going to go and get people excited about what you do if it's just so vanilla every time. Mm-hmm. You've got to put yourself out on a limb, mm-hmm. and some people might like that. Mm-hmm. Some architects are good at that. Warwick, it's been fantastic yeah, talking we today. We um, we've been, let's go with an hour and 40 minutes. And I honestly don't think we're going to have to cut much out of this. So, Warwick, <laughs> thank you for having me in your office and recording this. Thanks, Dad. Really interesting, man. It's good to have you. You can check out... Uh, do you want to plug anything? Uh, you know him. You know what he does. Yeah. Go on his website. Come Google Rick Lepastre. You'll find him. 